All right, good morning. You may be seated. Welcome to Living Truth. And if you have your Bible still, go ahead and open it to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to talk about the road to denial this morning, the road to denial. We're looking at Mark 14, verses 42 through 72. So go ahead and locate that. We're also going to be in some other texts. We'll be in the Proverbs as well if you want to prepare to turn over there. The road to denial. So we've all probably experienced uh, knowing someone, maybe multiple people, who had a confession of faith. Maybe they walked with the Lord for quite some time. Maybe were even used in ministry and were witnessing to others. Maybe they were even an encouragement to us in our own Christian experience. And then all of a sudden, we find out one day that that person is no longer going to church, no longer walking with the Lord. In fact, they are a person who now denies Jesus Christ. And this brings up a lot of questions in our own hearts and minds about what is the status of this person. This is what causes, causes many people to call Bible Answer Show type programs, which we happen to host, and say, can you lose your salvation? Or what happened to my friend? Or how do I know? And it brings up a lot of question marks in our hearts. What makes people do these kinds of things? There's a famous... Uh, evangelist of the time of Billy Graham. When Billy Graham was just starting out, his name was Charles Templeton. And Charles Templeton was a contemporary of Billy Graham, and he, they were both on preaching tours, both winning many people to Jesus Christ. And Charles Templeton abandoned the faith. And he says he did so because he saw, I think it was a Time magazine uh, cover uh, that showed a woman in Africa holding a dead baby, and the caption said if, something like this, if only it would rain. And so that picture was worth a thousand words to him. And he said, how could a God, you know, not bring rain? And so, you know, basically the problem of evil hit him. And he started writing books against the Christian faith and the God of the Bible. Well, if you've read the book um, by Lee Strobel, the first book that, uh, called The Case for Christ, he went and tracked down Charles Templeton. He was curious about Charles Templeton's story, and he began to inquire, and he found himself actually at Charles Templeton's home. And he was suffering from, um, I think it was dementia. And so uh, he was at the latter stages of his life. He was an older gentleman, and uh, uh, Lee Strobel began to ask him questions about his journey. And finally, Lee Strobel said, but what about Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? And in a moment of lucidness, Templeton responded, I miss him. And Strobel said he was shocked. And uh, it wasn't uh, just a short time after that Charles Templeton died. And so that leaves a lingering question mark. And we've, we probably have family members and friends. Maybe this is you. Maybe you're at a point where you hit a crisis and sometimes it's crisis moments, we call them crises of faith, that lead us to a point where we're not sure what we believe anymore. It could be something, you know, that's personally challenging to us. We've all had our moments and our stories. This night that we will look at in our Bibles is a well-known night. It's the night that Judas uh, betrays the Lord and Peter denies the Lord, and these are infamous things in our Bible. We all are quite familiar with them. But I called this the road to denial because I think it is a road. I don't think it's just one thing that happens to a person that causes them 
to, to deny Christ. I think it's multiple things. I think it's a, a path that people take, and then they end up at a point where finally they speak a denial, or they deny the Lord in their actions, or maybe they're gone from church for, you know, sometimes for some people for decades. And it, for some of them, it's a, it's a wound. It's a wound from people inside the church. Sadly, you know, we're not always prepared to deal with the fact that sometimes Christians can be very difficult. Amen? You know, we look at spiritual warfare and we think, oh, the devil's on the prowl and he uses unbelievers to get at us. Well, sometimes it's the people closest to us that hurt us the most. And Jesus experienced that with both Judas and Peter, two men that had followed Jesus for three and a half, some about three and a half years, two men that were quite intimate with him. The 12 were the intimate group. Peter was in the inner circle of the inner circle. And this would be a very difficult night for all of the above. Let's go ahead and pray and see what we can learn. Father, we, we're here to learn how we can be people who rely upon you more, who walk by faith and not by sight. You tell us that the Bible is given for our instruction and it's profitable if we're uh, willing to learn the lessons that we see in Scripture. And Peter's story doesn't end with a denial. Peter was mightily used by God. In fact, we could say that his denial became a turning point, but not for, for bad. He actually was a man that was used greatly by God. And you even used this night, uh, I think, to catapult him into learning he needed your power not to trust in his flesh. And I pray that we'll learn the same lessons, whatever lessons you have for us this morning. Lord, give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Jeremiah 18, 15 says, For my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless gods, and they have stumbled from their ways, from the ancient paths to walk and bypass, not on a highway. Yesterday we did a men's breakfast, and uh, Paul Hicks, uh, his brother, made little hand, hand-sized crosses uh, that you can use in prayer. There's nothing magical about the crosses that were given out, but they're a reminder that we find our hope in the cross, and we can even turn our question marks into the cross and understand that, you know, we're going to have question marks in this life, but we can find our answers in the person of Jesus and how much he loves us. Well, um, as we think about this issue and this road, uh, one of the things that I wanted to share with you is that one of the ways to avoid denial is to practice self-denial. If you're taking notes, that would be one major point to write down. It seems obvious, doesn't it? One way to avoid denial of Christ is to practice self-denial. Jesus said, take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross, and what? Follow me. Now, he had said that, I think it's Mark 8, 34. He had said that earlier to the disciples. He said, look, you're going to have to take up your own cross. He was preparing them. But along that journey that they were walking with Jesus, I'm not sure that they were always listening. I want to show you a proverb. Let's go to Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16. So the Proverbs have great little, call them nuggets of wisdom that we can hold on to. And a, a proverb a day is a great practice. Just read the proverb that matches the day of the month, and you'll have a built-in reading plan. There's 31 Proverbs. I don't think you can read them enough times. This is Proverbs 16. Look at verse 17. 
We're talking about the road to denial, and Proverbs 16, 17 says, The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. Proverbs 16, 17. He who watches his way preserves his life. Pride goes before what? Destruction. And a haughty spirit before stumbling or a fall, says the New King James. It is better to be of humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. He who gives attention to the word shall find good. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Simon had told Jesus, Simon Peter had told Jesus, even if everybody denies you, if, even if everybody falls away, I will never fall away. One of the Gospels, he says, I will go to prison and I will go to death with you. And we all, you know, we, we have phrases in our contemporary language like famous last words. You know, have you ever uh, said something and then regretted it? <laughs> you, ever, you ever made a statement of, you know, even though everybody else does this kind of stuff, I, me, let me check my teeth in the mirror. Hold on a second. I will never. Those are the famous last words. And the apostles were not prepared for what was going to happen on this night. They thought they were. Peter thought he was. In fact, all of them said the same thing. They said, we won't deny you. But they did. They all fled on that night. And it was a hard night. In Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Peter is told by Jesus, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you when, you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus told Peter that Satan was demanding permission to destroy him, to sift him like wheat, to chew him up and spit him out, is basically the idea of the language, to consume Peter. And Jesus says, I've prayed for you. And here's the prophecy that Jesus gave. When you have turned again or turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now, we've all probably had moments in our lives, turning points of failure, and sometimes our greatest failures can be springboards to success because we learn that we cannot do it on our own. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the power of Jesus Christ in our lives. And Peter had made a confession there, and Jesus had told him, no, you're going to deny me. And you're going to deny me three times. If you're still in the Proverbs, go to Proverbs 24. Look at verse 16. Proverbs 24, 16 says these words. Though a righteous man falls seven times, Proverbs 24, 16, he rises again, but the wicked are brought down by calamity. Do not gloat when your enemy falls, Proverbs 24, 17. When he stumbles, do not let your heart rejoice. For the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away from him. I just read from the NIV there. You see, you might fall seven times during the day, and you know, sometimes when we make our mistakes, we think, well, maybe it's about me having the strength to get back up again. It's not really about that. It's about God's strength in you. We have a redeemer. He's the one that helps us to walk in times of failure. And I just preached, uh, go back to the book of Mark, uh, from Genesis 38 on Wednesday night. And if you're uh, interested in coming on Wednesday nights, I'm going through the book of Genesis, and I'm in the story of Joseph right now. Great lessons there. Back to Mark 14. And Judah had a, 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 a big stumble. 
And that stumble for Judah, if, if you track the rest of his life in, as recorded in the book of Genesis, he actually becomes a stronger man after that stumble. Here's my point. Sometimes when we stumble, we're tempted to say, well, maybe I should give up on what God's called me to do. Maybe, maybe I should not go to church anymore. Look, if, if that was the qualification, we should just empty the building now. Amen? We all stumble in many ways. But what we want to do is get a consistent walk, and I think we can learn from Peter's example here. Just so we, we have everything clear in our minds, Peter was the most prominent of Jesus' 12 apostles. The New Testament gives us a more complete picture of Peter than any other disciple, with the exception of Paul. Peter is often considered to be a big, blundering fisherman, but this is a shallow portrayal. I'm reading from one of the Bible dictionaries. The picture of his personality portrayed in the New Testament is rich and many-sided. A more fitting appraisal of Peter is that he was a pioneer among the 12 apostles and the early church, breaking ground that the church would later follow. In fact, Peter was given the keys to the kingdom by Jesus, and it's quite interesting in the book of Acts that Peter is the one that preaches in Jerusalem, and 3,000 people come to Jesus Christ. He goes down at the Samaritan preaching that happens, and he goes down and prays over those people in Acts chapter 8. And in Acts chapter 10, it's Peter who opens the door to the Gentiles as he goes into the house of Cornelius. Isn't it amazing? The man that's often known to be the blundering fisherman who denied the Lord and was proud was actually the main voice for the early church. The first 10 chapters of the book of Acts are about Peter. Largely about Peter. And how God, or Jesus, had given him the keys, and he opened the door to the Jews, he opened the door to the Samaritans, and to the Gentiles. Sometimes we think, well, if I fail, then God can't use me. No, God can use you. Sometimes your failures can be turning points. And Peter was no failure. You know, sometimes we, we have a moment where we, we've had a big stumble, and we think, that well, that stumble is now going to define my life. That failure is always going to be attached to me, but that's not the way it is for Christians. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. Amen? The old things have gone. The new has come. Every day, His mercies are new. You don't have to be defined by your failures, but learn from them and move on. What are some of the things that we can learn from Peter? Well, early on, before we, we get into the main text Peter was warned to keep watching and praying that he would not fall into temptation. That's 1438. It says, moreover, uh, by them, that is the precepts of the Lord, your servant is warned. But Peter didn't pay attention to the warning. And sometimes we have warning signs in our lives. If you're taking notes, I'm trying to give you some things that you, so you don't go down this road to denial. When you get a warning sign, pay attention. And we all probably have had moments where we're on kind of the precipice. We're on the verge of doing something dumb, and we got a warning sign. And sometimes we brush them off, like, ah, nah. Now that couldn't be God, could it? Oh, yes, it very well could be. Probably is God saying, don't do that. I know what you've been postulating in your mind. You know God even knows what you think could be quite inconvenient at times, can it? <laughs> now the time is at hand in Mark 14, 42, as we will try to tackle up to verse 72. We'll see. 
Jesus says, <laughs> and all God's people laughed at Pastor Michael. That's just, that's just wrong. Anyway, Mark 14, verse 42. Let's pick it up. He says, Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now, Jesus had been praying in the garden. Three times he had prayed for that cup to pass from him. Luke twenty two fifty three 53 says, This hour and the power of darkness is yours. Jesus' soul was troubled in John 12, 27. But he said, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve... Mark reminds us that Judas was one of the 12 disciples or apostles, came up, accompanied by a multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Notice that Judas was leading this, this band and their numbers probably were in the hundreds. Notice that the group, according to Mark, were from the chief priests, end of verse 43, the scribes and the elders. That's why uh, there are many that argue this is the temple police. And the temple police, my understanding, were made up of Levites, but they had the, the ability or they were given the charge to protect things related to the temple and so forth. And they went out. Notice they had swords and clubs. Others believe that there's a combination of Roman soldiers and temple police. They're led by one of the twelve. His name is Judas Iscariot. Who is this guy? Well, we don't know a whole lot about Judas. We, he's not talked about a lot, but we do know that in the list of the apostles, Peter's always mentioned first and Judas is always mentioned last. But they didn't know that Judas was evil. When Jesus said at the Last Supper, one of you will betray me, they didn't all look at Judas like, oh, I knew it. But John's gospel tells us that all along, Judas was stealing from the money bag or the money box. He was a thief. And some believe he was an insurrectionist. And when Jesus wasn't doing what he thought should be done, then he turned on him. He did it for 30 pieces of silver, which se it seems odd that he would do that for that kind of money. But uh, Judas was definitely stealing. He was a thief, and Jesus called him a devil from the beginning. Now, he who was betraying him, 44, had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away under guard in the shadowy darkness of Gethsemane as we've already set the table from last time's message here came Judas and uh, apparently not everybody in the group knew who Jesus was or what he looked like it was a it was nighttime it was cold although it was spring so it was probably a full moon and Judas says this is what I'm going to do I'm going to kiss the one that you are to take uh, we're told from ancient sources that the typical way that a disciple would greet his master was with a kiss. So they were, they were quite used to this. In fact, there's the idea that the holy kiss goes all the way back to the time of Jesus. We see that in Europe where people often, they do that kiss on both the cheeks and we think that that's kind of a neat way to greet people. Well, this may go all the way back to Jesus. Paul said to the church, greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, I personally have issues with the holy kiss, especially from certain individuals. I feel tempted to talk about football after it happens, but anyway, we won't. If you've ever been around Paul Hicks, prepare to be kissed, but it's okay. The uh, word for kiss here is kata phileo. 
It's an intensified form of the word, which implies, Cranfield says it implies a prolonged kiss, like he kissed him over and over and over again. What an actor Judas was. You know, Judas was the ultimate hupakritas, that's the Greek word for hypocrite. He wore a mask the whole time, and even on the night when he betrays Jesus, he does it with a kiss. Can you imagine being Jesus and knowing what he was up to as he kisses you over and over and over again? What would your reaction be? And it was a slithery kiss as well, because we know that Judas had been uh, possessed by Satan. What we often don't think about, I think, in this scene is that Jesus was human. And I'm sure that it was hard for him to take someone who had been with him all this time who betrayed him. You know, when we think about Jesus and think about his high priestly ministry, we understand he can sympathize with our weaknesses. You know what? He also understands betrayal very well. He was betrayed with a kiss, a prolonged kiss. There's a prophecy in Psalm 55. Here's what it says. This is 12 through 16. It says, If for it, it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol. For evil is in their dwelling and in their midst. As for me, I shall call upon God and the Lord will save me. My familiar friend, how many times did they sit around a fire and talk? How many times did they rejoice at a miracle Jesus had done? How many times do you think Judas was, was overwhelmed by the glory of Jesus and seeing his miracle-working power, hearing words that fell from his mouth? Judas was there for all of that. He was there for all the sermons. He was there for all the miracles. And yet on this night, he kisses him over and over again. You know, if you've ever been betrayed by someone who promised, you know, they would be faithful to you, it's hard. And Judas kissed him. And Jesus reached out to him in, uh, until the end. Matthew 26, 50 records that Jesus said to him, Friend, friend, do what you came for. Would you have called him friend? <laughs> I would have had some words, I think, for him. I'm not sure friend would have been at the top of my list. Friend, do what you came for. The disciples have been sleeping instead of praying, and all of a sudden, notice in verse 46 of Mark 14, it says, They laid hands on him, on Jesus, and they seized him. Peter was watching the goings-on, and he attempted to intervene. It says, A certain one, that is Peter, we learn from uh, Mark's gospel, a certain one of those who stood by drew his sword. Just a side note, Jesus' disciples did carry weapons. I know there's a whole move of pacifism in uh, some denominations of Christianity, but the New Testament doesn't require a pacifistic attitude. They did have swords for protection, and Peter took his sword up at this moment, and he struck the slave of the high priest. The high priest had his own personal servant, and he cut off his ear. Now, we don't know if Peter was groggy, and that's why he just got an ear. <laughs> was he going for the head? 
You know, some people have said that maybe the high priest servant had a helmet on. We don't know for sure. Was he part of the temple police? But whatever the case may be, Peter is the one who does this. Now, it's interesting that most scholars believe that Peter is the one behind the thoughts of Mark's gospel. But Peter is not mentioned here. It doesn't say Peter stood up and cut off his ear. I kind of wonder why. I don't know for sure. I don't know if this is humility or Peter just wants to be left out of this one from Mark's gospel. But all scripture is inspired by God, so there's a reason. But he struck the slave of the high priest and he cut off his ear. There's a parallel passage in John 18, and this is verse 10. It says, Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. Now we know that in John's record of this, Jesus had stepped up to this group led by Jesus and said, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. And they all fell back. Do you remember that? Like dominoes. (laughs) They all had to get straightened up. Jesus had to ask them again, Who are you looking for again? (laughs) Now wouldn't that, I think that would have turned me over to Jesus' side. Don't you think? This guy says, I am the divine name. They all fall backwards, right? I think Judas included, he had to get up, you know. But even that, you know, when you're bent on ignoring God's warning signs to you, apparently nothing will do it. Peter took out the sword and Jesus said to him, in, uh, as recorded in Matthew, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then shall the scripture be fulfilled that it must happen in this way? Years ago, Tom Papagna shared a testimony. He was part of the Italian mafia in New York, part of what I think was called the pizza connection. Everything's connected to pizza and it's Italians. So uh, anyway, he, he grew in the ranks of the mafia. This is a testimony that was shared on Focus on the Family some years ago. And he became like the number two in this family. And so he had, he had some encounters with a person that kept trying to invite him to church. And he found himself suicidal. And uh, you know, he, had, he had gotten money and destroyed people's lives. And so, so his life was kind of at the end. And he was getting ready to commit suicide one night. And the phone rang. And the same gentleman that had been inviting him to church had called right before he was going to kill himself. Hey, I want to invite you over for dinner. So he had dinner and ended up showing up at this church and... As he tells his testimony, he finally uh, broke and gave his life to Jesus Christ. But he said, you can't just leave that kind of position in the mafia. So he said that what happened was they had put a contract out on his life. And it was hundreds of thousands of dollars. And he said he heard stories later that there were people that were showing up. They were putting bombs outside of his window and going to set them off and they wouldn't go off. Then they'd take the bomb out in the field and it would explode. And God was supernaturally protecting him. So he said, you know, he just was kind of waiting to die. And he turned on the television one night and he saw the head of the family dead in the streets of New York. That canceled out the contract that was on his life. He quoted this scripture. He said, he who lives by the sword will what? Die by the sword. He said, I'm not saying God killed the man for me, but I'm saying that if you live that kind of lifestyle, it catches up to you. So Peter was in error as he cut off Malchus's 
ear. I put in my notes, that was an error, but anyway. There you go. I thought it was funny when I was sitting in my office. Um, Chopped any ears off lately? You know, it struck me that Simon, Simon's name is a form of Simeon. And Simeon's name means to hear. He was renamed Peter, which means rock or little rock. And in the garden, he cuts off somebody's ear, and Jesus does what? He heals the ear. Do you think there's a little message in there somewhere? Like, if you want your ears to be healed... If you want to help people hear instead of cutting off ears, pay more attention. Well, Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out with swords, 48, and clubs to arrest me against a robber? NIV says, Am I leading a rebellion? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching. All through the Passover week he was doing this. You did not seize me, but this has happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus was going to die at the exact time that had been decreed by the Father. And here's verse 50. They all left him and fled. The word all means all. That includes Peter. They all bailed. And a certain young man was following him, 51, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him. But he left the linen sheet behind and escaped naked. Most of the uh, church fathers have conjectured that the young man mentioned here is Mark himself our gospel writer, they think that what happened was the Passover probably happened in the upper room at Mark's house. This is some speculation, but it's on pretty safe ground. And that Mark woke up in the middle of the night, put a sheet around himself to see what was kind of going on and ended up at this scene. And they tried to seize him and that's why he fled in this way. This was a young man who fled in this way. And so everybody fled. The, the, the main idea here is that they all fled. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. We're told in other uh, gospel accounts that they went to Annas, the ex-high priest first, then the Caiaphas' house. All the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. There were 70 who made up the Sanhedrin. They were the ruling council of Israel. And they only needed 23 of them to have a quorum, by the way. So we're, we're not sure if every single one of them was there, but it seems like the majority of them had showed up in the middle of the night. All the chief priests, the elders, the scribes that make up the Sanhedrin are mentioned there. <clears throat> Caiaphas was their leader. According to other sources, he was in the position for 19 years, and his name was Inquisitor. Uh, interestingly enough, they found Caiaphas's bone box in 1990. Sumi, if you've got the photos there, I'll show you a picture of what they discovered. This happened in 1990. They were doing a project in, the, in Israel. This, this happens quite often in this area. They were kind of preparing an area, and all of a sudden they came across this find, and they were, the, the Jewish people are very concerned about protecting the dead and that which relates to it. So uh, go to the next one, Sumi. So they discovered this in 1990. It was discovered by the, the uh, construction company. They stopped everything, pulled the ossuary out. Go to the next one, if you would. And they found a bone box with these markings. And the markings say, Joseph Caiaphas. 
the high priest that oversaw Jesus' condemnation way back, what we're reading about. Interestingly enough, Caiaphas is dead. And do you know who he had to answer to the moment he died? The one that he was so quick to condemn has become his judge. Do you know that Jesus oversees all funerals? People who have mocked them to their graves. They say that the bones that they found in this uh, ossuary, which is uh, quite a little box, they take the bones after decomposition of the body, belong to about a 60-year-old man that tells us that Caiaphas lived till he was about 60. And then he got to face the true judge that he was so quick to condemn. Now the chief priests and the whole council, 55, kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. This was their goal from uh, many chapters back. They were trying to find a way to kill him, destroy him, but they were not finding any. Many were giving false testimony against him, and yet their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. And not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. By the way, in John 2, 19, Jesus didn't say, I will destroy this temple. He said, destroy this temple. And he was speaking of the temple of his body. But if you threatened or your words were taken as a threat against any holy site, this could be a capital crime. And of course, they twisted Jesus' words. Ironically, he was talking about what they were just about to do. He was saying, destroy my body, and in three days I will raise it again. But they twisted his words. So ironically, they were about to fulfill the prophecy that Jesus had spoken. He wasn't talking about the physical building, although he had prophesied that even that building was going to be destroyed in uh, due time. And the high priest stood up and came forward. I'm sure he was probably frustrated at this point. Caiaphas did. And he questioned Jesus, and he said, do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? Now, legally, you had to face your accusers, and you were put in the middle of this. This was a a group that was convened kind of in the moment. They weren't in their typical place, which was the, uh, there was a a place called the, what was it, the stone of the, called the hewn stone or something like that. This is where they would typically gather, but they, they apparently are in the house, in Caiaphas's house. They've surrounded him, and they're bringing all these accusations, and Jesus is just saying nothing. Isaiah 53, 7, written 700 years before Jesus was born, says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. He could have quickly corrected what they were saying, right? He could have said, no, false, eh, wrong. But he just stayed quiet. He kept silent. And he said, what is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent. He made no answer. And again, the high priest was questioning him. And he said to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? According to Matthew 26, 63, he put him under oath by the living God He said, tell us whether you are the Christ or not. So many people who read their Bible say, ah, Jesus never said he was God. Jesus never said he was the Messiah. And the high priest says, tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, 62, I am. 
That's pretty ironclad evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, isn't it? And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. By the way, that's the place of the judge. And coming with the clouds of heaven. That speaks of his second coming, his coming in power. Write down Psalm 110. The Lord says, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. I'm going to be at the right hand of power, verse 62. And Daniel 7, 13 and 14 says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, this Messiah was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And when the high priest heard these two scripture references, Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, 13 and 14, he knew what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, you think you're judging me? I'm going to judge you. And I think Caiaphas's bone box is an indication of that. And tearing his clothes in an act that the Jews would use, an act when you were angry and you wanted to express disgust or mourning, the high priest, probably dressed in his official garb, tore his clothes and he said, what further need do we have of witnesses? <laughs> the witnesses produced nothing at all. He said, you have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And some began to spit at him and blindfold him and beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. All of a sudden, things got violent. You know, it had been that Jesus was just before this group and they had malicious intent, but now they blindfold him and they begin to slug him in the face. And it says they, they hit him with fists. That means the punches were coming from everywhere. They blindfolded him so he couldn't see where they were coming from. And then multiple people started to slug him in the face. Now, if you've ever been hit in the face, it's not a pleasant experience. But if you ever get hit when you don't know where the blows are coming from, it's scary. Some of us are going to watch some football today. Some of us are recording some football at this moment. If you've ever seen a quarterback get blindsided, you kind of know how this works. You, you know, your quarterback's in the pocket, right? He's looking to make a pass, and you see someone's coming there. You can see it on TV. He doesn't see it coming. You're like, get out of the house! <laughs> and when he gets hit, and he doesn't see the blow coming, he can't prepare his body. When you see a blow coming, you can kind of go with the blow and kind of lessen the, the, the hit or the force of the hit, but when you don't see it, it's coming. Can you imagine having your eyes blindfolded and people are hitting you from multiple directions? You can't see where the next one's coming from. And they hit him over and over and over again. And they would say to him, prophesy, who hit you? With a skewed interpretation from Isaiah 11 or some of the Writing said that the Messiah would be able to even know things from the sense of smell. They begin to challenge his statement that he was the Messiah. They spit at him or spit in his face, which was the ultimate insult of the day. They beat him with their fists, plural, and they slapped him with multiple slaps in the face. They were beating him to a pulp, and this is just the beginning of his passion. I was listening to the Bible Answer Man broadcast with Hank Hanegraaff many years ago, and a 
a man called the program. He was very angry. And he was an outspoken atheist, and he said to Hank Anagraph, I can't believe that you believe this stuff. How can you believe this stuff about some benevolent creator in the sky? How can you believe in heaven and hell? How can you believe any of that stuff? And the guy was angry. And Hank said, I understand where you're coming from. I used to be an atheist myself. Until some witnesses for Christ came to my door, and I met the living God. I don't, I don't know how you could even believe in that junk. Jesus Christ, he says this on the air, it's recorded, is a ninny. You say, what's a ninny? A ninny is a way of saying he's a worthless fool. And if Jesus Christ is real, and one day I do stand before him, I will spit in his face. Now, if you were Hank Hanegraaff on the other side of the line, what would you be doing? Cut him off. Send him back in. Or would you respond with anger? If I stand before him, I will spit in his face. And Hank said, well, that wouldn't be the first time that happened. The guy, I think, was rocked. You see, there are people who are angry and spiteful of Jesus. And today, may I submit, there's still people spitting in his face. And yet, he holds off the judgment. You know, when I read these words, they make me want to fall to my knees and say, O Lamb of God, what you did for me. The words of this song come to mind. Your only son knows sin to hide, but you have sent him from your side to walk upon this guilty sod and to become the Lamb of God. Your gift of love they crucified. They laughed and scorned him as he died. The humble king they named a fraud and sacrificed the Lamb of God. O Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God, I love the holy Lamb of God. O wash me in your precious blood, my Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. I was so lost I should have died, but you have brought me to your side to be led by your staff and rod, and to be called the Lamb of God. You know, they didn't know it, but they were fulfilling prophecy when Jesus says, spoken through Isaiah, I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, Isaiah 50, verses 6 and 7. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. And while he was being reviled, he did not revile in return. While he was suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Do you know who wrote that? Do you know who wrote that? Peter, that's 1 Peter 2, 23 and 24. You see, this rock took the fall. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let, my, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. 
Now the camera pans from Jesus being abused as we wind down to Peter below. And I think it's fitting that he's below. And I think it's also fitting that this is verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. Seeing Peter warming himself, it was a cold night, she looked at him, his face now exposed by the firelight, and said, you too were with Jesus the Nazarene. Can you imagine how many different places Peter had been seen with Jesus? He was proud to be seen with Jesus, right? He was the man. He was the inner circle of the inner circle. This was the guy who was given the keys. He was proud to be called a Christian. How about you and me? I have days when I'm proud to be called a Christian. And then I have other days when I'm not feeling so Christian. And then I remember I have a Christian t-shirt on. Go, oh my goodness. <laughs> Anybody ever have them? Shoot, I've got a Christian t-shirt on. And then I realize people know me in various places in this city. More places than I realize. I walk into places sometimes a little off but a little tired. Sometimes incognito, just going to get frozen yogurt. <laughs> Sunglasses on. <laughs> hey, aren't you uh, Pastor Michael? Yeah, yeah, hold on. Let me wipe the drool off my <laughs> Hey, I got news for you. I got news for you. They know you're a, you're a Christian too. Isn't that grand? <laughs> What, what, me? Yeah, they, they know you're a Christian too. You're one of them. But he denied it. He said, 68, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch. By the way, this phrase, I neither know or understand what you're talking about, is a legal denial. It's a form of legal denial. And the maid saw him, began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. Apparently they followed him. But he was denying it. After a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. They say Galileans have a tough time with some of the guttural sounds in the Semitic language. So that's how they get exposed. You're a Galilean too, we can tell by your dialect. And he began to curse and swear. Probably the way to take this is he began to call curses down on himself and the others who were accusing him. And in essence, he was saying, if I belong to him, may I be cursed. And if you are wrong, may you be cursed. Oh, my goodness. Watch out, Peter. He said, I do not know this man, and I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately... cock crowed for the second time. They say that the rooster crow happened three times during a typical night. Around midnight and then a little later in the second watch and then finally just at the kind of the awakening of the dawn. And by the way they say when a rooster crows it does so for three to five minutes. It's not just once. He kept doing it again and again and again. And when Peter said those words, I don't know this man, and he called curses down and swore, and the rooster crowed, it kept crowing. <laughs> Can you imagine being Peter? 
And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep bitterly. You know, sometimes the way back is the way of tears. Some, some of us are afraid to cry. We don't want to show our emotion to people. But sometimes you really know something's happened in somebody when they cry. I'm not saying tears are always the acid test. But I'm saying often when you see tears, you know something's going on. Luke tells us, and I want you to turn to Luke and we're done. Turn to Luke 22. Luke 22. Dr. Luke records this exchange in the courtyard. 2260. Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, a cock crowed. 2261 of Luke. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter, Luke twenty two sixty one, 61, remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. As you piece this together, what I understand has happened is that Jesus is beaten and bloodied by the fists and the spitting and the slaps, and he's being taken out of the courtyard, and Peter's given his third denial, and there's a meeting of the eyes, and Peter is able to look on his bloodied, swollen Savior. What do you think the look was like? We don't know for sure. But their eyes locked for a moment. And the rooster was probably still crowing. And Peter would never forget this night. We've all probably had our moments. One more scripture, 1 Peter 5, and then I, the preacher promises we're done. 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. So Peter wrote a couple of letters that are in the back of your New Testament. It's interesting to look at their content in light of what happened to Peter. And as I mentioned, this was obviously a turning point. He was fully restored. He, he experienced the road to restoration, even though he had a hard night of tears. And Peter wrote these words. 1 Peter 5, start at verse 5. He says, You younger men... 1 Peter 5, 5, Likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives what? Grace to the humble. Peter certainly lived that. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Peter lived all of this. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour or sift like wheat. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered, verse 10, for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter experienced all of those. To him be dominion forever and ever, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's bow our hearts for a moment, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. Death and the curse were in that cup. O Christ, t'was full for thee, but thou hast drained the last dark dregs. Tis empty now for me. Lord God, thank you that Jesus drank the cup of suffering and
your wrath for me. Thank you that our stumbles don't have to define us, but Lord, we want to learn from Peter's stumble here. And, you know, maybe this, this hits home for a lot of folks. Maybe they're living this right now. Maybe they are just trying to get back, and there is a way back. And the way back is to lean on you, find strength in you, find renewal and refreshment in you. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to hearts now just about your love and your goodness, your patience. Why you came in the first place was to save us from ourselves and save us from your wrath. Oh, Lamb of God, thank you that you came for me and died for me. If you're here and uh, you have not met him, you don't know him as your shepherd, just surrender, man. Something like this, I would just encourage you to pray it right now. Jesus, save me. Pray it out loud. Forgive me. I'm sorry for doing it my own way, doing it in my own strength. Please cleanse me from my sin. I trust you as my Lord and my Savior. I believe you died on that cross for me and rose from the dead for me. I repent and I receive you as my Lord. Teach me to walk with you. If you're a prodigal, you've been away from the Lord. Maybe a lot of this has hit home for you. The Bible does say, even to the church, to repent and return to our first love. Maybe that's what you need to do right now. And if you're a saint, and maybe you, maybe some of the other elements of this message have hit home, or maybe you just have a newfound appreciation or a deeper appreciation of your Lord, then just rest in Him. Find your strength in Him. Lord, would you minister to every soul, every heart, I pray. Let your living waters wash over this congregation. Strengthen us from the inner person. And I pray over each precious soul. I love this group of people so much, and I know you love them. And I pray your love will carry us through every season of life. That we'll walk on the highway to holiness and end up right before you where you say, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.